Welcome to American Education FM, everybody. I'm Dr. Sean Brooks. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, I'll tell you what. I'm going to do my best to put this together in chronological order here. I think I've got it pretty much set up. I want to start with, again, the Jennifer Crumbly verdict, the so-called guilty verdict, which in my opinion is completely ridiculous having watched the entire trial and being objective about this entire thing, taking emotion completely out of the equation, which unfortunately is, is frankly exactly what the jury was engaging in this entire time. They were not engaging in objectivity, they were engaging in emotion. So first of all, to sort of bring some people up to speed, what I did was, is that very evening of the verdict, which would have been Tuesday, I put together a Substack article on the AmericanClassroom.substack.com, and I titled it, The Lie of In Loco Parentis. Uh, the Jennifer Crumbly verdict, the legal responsibility of schools, a miscarriage of justice, and the national security threat that is the American school environment. I highly recommend reading that first before you listen to this, because again, there's a great deal that was, of course, brought up throughout the entire trial and a lot of details. And unfortunately, there were a lot of details that were not honed in on or focused in on from the defense side of things. Again, in particular, in the closing arguments and uh, in a number of other avenues that it could have clearly been brought out during actual questioning. So, in that particular Substack article, though, I, I, I hone in on a variety of different subjects, but I also hone in on Ethan's, Ethan's math worksheet, where it's beyond evident that he wants to hurt people or himself, or both, as it's pretty indicative that that's the case. The question I would have asked if I was the defense attorney, and I would have asked everybody this question, didn't matter if they were school officials or even not. Or I certainly would have asked the jury and, and posed this to the jury during the closing arguments is that what was the time in which, what was the, uh, I guess, the elapsed time that existed between the homework or this schoolwork being known to the actual school teacher themselves to the point where the book bag itself was again in the presence of the parents? Because there was an elapsed time, again, where Nicholas E. Jack, the dean of students, was holding on to the book bag himself and even made a comment about how heavy the book bag was or how unusually heavy it seemed. And again, with all of the evidence that was on this worksheet, combined with Ethan's ridiculous editorial work on his own worksheet once he got caught drawing and writing what he was writing. This, this is your largest red flag as a school employee that the school employees did not do what they were contractually obligated to do and legally obligated to do. That's what in loco parentis is. It's in lieu of parent, in place of parent, from a legal standpoint. That when you hand your children over to a government entity and you're giving that government entity permission to then be legally responsible for the safety of not only your child, but endless children within a school environment, and you don't follow your own policies, let alone look at homework like this, and then you don't act on it using your own policy, well, you're responsible then. So 
Let me focus in on this particular aspect uh, again of, of the Substack, and it's only a, a piece of the Substack article, but I want to focus in on it. On the first paper I wrote here, on the first eth- on the first paper that Ethan drew, again, this is geometry. This is a geometry uh, worksheet. He didn't do any math questions on the worksheet. He just drew, he just drew and wrote the following. He drew a picture of a gun. He drew a picture of a, of a body bleeding with at least two bullet holes in it. He drew a smiley face with a bullet hole. I'm sorry, a smiley face and an actual bullet casing, also on the homework. And then he wrote, quote, the, th- the thoughts won't stop, help me. Blood everywhere. My life is useless. The world is dead. Once he got caught writing this, and the female math teacher picked it up, took a picture of it with her own cell phone, and sent it to the counselor. Instead of confiscating it, she actually handed it back to Ethan. I mean, you would want to keep it then at that point. You would want to hang on to that homework. You don't just take a picture of it and send it to the counselor. You keep it. Again, you have to understand I'm I'm looking at this as a former educator and in the process and procedure of what you actually do. But what did she do? She took a picture of it, handed the worksheet back to Ethan, and then sent the picture to the counselor. Ethan then crossed out, once again getting caught, on the, on the revised paper now, he scratched out the picture of the gun, the body bleeding with bullet holes in it. He left the picture of the bullet or the bullet casing, and he scratched out the sentences, all of the previous sentences that he wrote, those four phrases, and he wrote next to them the following, quote, video game this is, OHS rocks, I love my life so much, harmless art, we're all friends here. He literally wrote out the exact opposite of the things that he initially said. This this is beyond a red flag, which brings me back to my original point. How long and what was the length of time in which the school employees knew this without the parents knowing? While Ethan was in the building, while they were in possession of his book bag, which also had the gun, bullets, magazines, and his journal where he openly stated he was going to shoot up the building and kill people, and that there was no coming back from this. The school is guilty in this case. They were not on trial. That's, that's the miscarriage of justice here. Let me give you an, another example. Hypothetically speaking, let's assume for a moment that Ethan didn't kill anybody. Okay? Let's assume that this entire incident ends, which it would have ended, with the searching of his backpack. Keeping in mind that it was the teacher the entire time who was bringing this information to the counselor, and it was the counselor who was slow rolling all of this information. And then it was Nicholas Ejack, the dean of students, who said that this wasn't a discipline issue, this was a mental and emotional health issue. Again, Splitting hairs. They're, they're really splitting hairs to protect themselves. But again, hypothetically speaking, I promise I'll stay on track now. Hypothetically speaking, let's assume that the entire incident ended 
with the searching of his backpack. That would mean you would have the confiscation of a firearm in a school. Ethan would have been immediately arrested. The gun would have been confiscated. It would have been taken to another room along with his entire backpack. They would have searched through the entire thing because they had probable cause to do so even as citizens, again, in loco parentis. They're legally responsible for protecting Ethan and everybody in the building. Citizens minors, parents minors, so now they're in place of parent. Ethan would have been again detained. The parents would have shown up to the school. They would have said, we found a gun in Ethan's backpack, and they would have flipped their shit. They would have said, that's our gun. He stole our gun. Remember, I just said the word stole. He stole our gun. What would have happened then? What would have happened is, is Ethan would have been arrested. He would have been sent to jail. Juvenile detention, uh, whatever, sheriff's station, you name it. And then the parents would have been interviewed. How did he get the gun? Well, he stole it from us. This is our gun legally, and he took it from us, and we didn't know that he took it. That would have been the end of it. Ethan would have been charged with the unlawful possession of a gun because he's a minor. It's not his gun. It's legally his father's. His, his father was the one who bought it with his money, signed off on it legally on the, on the background check paperwork. Which means, again, it wouldn't have been Ethan's gun legally. It still wasn't Ethan, Ethan's gun legally. But the parents would have then left the police station, and they, wouldn't, they would never have been charged with anything. Not ever. They wouldn't have been charged. Because you can't. It was stolen property. Emphasis on the word stolen. The word stolen, to my recollection, never came up in trial. Not once. The defense attorney never said, Ethan stole this gun from you. He never looked at Jennifer Crumbly and said, so Ethan stole this gun from you, didn't he? I mean, again, it was never even, it was the, the word stolen, to my recollection, was never brought up. Not ever. Nor to the jury in, in the closing arguments. Ethan stole this gun from his parents. And purposely, as I lay out, of course, in the substack, and as Ethan wrote in his own journal, which was direct evidence as far as I'm concerned, Ethan wrote in his journal that he needed to find the gun and then make sure that his parents didn't catch him. This is direct evidence that the parents had no idea what Ethan had planned. Not a clue. Neither did the school, because the school didn't check the bag either. Nobody thought to check the bag. As I say even in the Substack article, not even the parents and the counselors and the dean, all in the same room, after seeing all of that math evidence on that math worksheet, thought to check the book bag. It wasn't until later in the day after the school was on lockdown and the father found out that he, the father called 911. And they played, again, that 911 tape during the trial. He sounded like a panicked father who said, holy shit, my son stole my gun. My gun's missing. He must have taken it to school. That's when they started to piece things together that it might be their son. 
Do you see what I'm saying? My point is, is that if you take the murders out of the equation, the parents are never charged with anything. Ethan would be charged with unlawful possession of a firearm. He would have been expelled from the school. He would have been in juvenile detention, and he would have received serious psychotherapy. Because at that point, again, they would have gone through his journal and realized this kid was going to kill people. But they wouldn't have charged the parents with anything. They may have asked the parents a few more questions. It's possible the parents would have lawyered up and said, look, we, we never read the kid's journal. We, we bought him a journal, and he could write in it whatever he wanted to write in it, but we never went through it, and we never asked him what he was writing in it. That's not uncommon. I mean, even, even my parents gave me a diary when I was a kid for a little while, and I didn't really write in it. I just kind of wrote, like, school sucks, and that was about it. I didn't really write anything else in it, and then I stopped writing in it. But again, that's not uncommon. Having a journal like that's not uncommon. What, of course, is unfortunate and remarkably uncommon is what was written in it. Now, with that aside, and even the facts of that and the hypothetical situation of that aside, I want to play this now. Because again, in this text thread between Kristen, Bobby, Jesse, and myself, the very first person to come to the forefront after the verdict was the jury four woman. And again, my recollection on the four women is that these are, or four men in, in these situations, is they're the ones that basically manage the entire room and manage what the verdict will be and listen to everybody and make sure that everybody's taking turns and they delegate roles and the whole thing. I want, I want to play this audio here for you because what she says in it and her tone are indicative of the much larger problem. So I'm going to play it first, and then I'll give you my comments on the other end. So give this a listen in three, two, one. Okay, so tell us how it was to a brain. It was very difficult. It wasn't an easy decision. Um, lives hung in the balance, and we, we took that very seriously. And tell us, um, was it, oh, did you have to convince each other? Is there anything, anything like that where it was going maybe? Um, I will say um, both sides were well represented. Oh, okay. Tell me your name. I, nope. You don't want to tell your name? That's nope. fine. That's you, fine. You, you were the forewoman, though? I was the forewoman. Okay. Is there, uh, was there something specific that really stuck that you guys were debating over in hours? Um, the thing that really hammered it home is that she was the last adult with the gun. And that's where I'll end my, my comment. Thank you. Okay. If you had heard from Ethan, would that change anything? Thank you. So first of all, I was going back and forth with him like, is this, is this woman real? Is she a plant? Is she fake? Was she actually there for the entire trial? Because she didn't necessarily sound like it, and I'll break that down in a minute. But as it turns out, she was. Kristen took notes on this woman. She was there. She was in the courtroom. She was on the jury. She, she's real. The question of her being a plant, however, that's still out there. Because what ends up happening later is, is the very next day or that evening, she flew to New York and was on the Today Show for at least three plus minutes. And they moved that audio and video my way, and I'll play that next. But I want to hone in on what she said. She said everybody was well represented in the jury. So that must have meant that it was a relatively divided jury. 
by definition, that means that there was reasonable doubt, which means not guilty. That's the way that that's supposed to work. If you go back to deliberate, once everybody has closed, and you go around the horn and you say, okay, give me your initial verdict off the top of your head, and some of the people say not guilty, and other people say guilty, then that means that there's doubt, which means you can try to convince one another, I suppose, but the simple fact that there's doubt in the room implies directly that there's reasonable doubt, which means by legal definition, you're supposed to vote not guilty. They didn't do that. They must have hammered on each other over what was apparently not the facts of the case in order to arrive at the decision that they arrived at. Let me give you an example of what she just said, which was false. She just said what what hammered it home for us was that Jennifer was the last adult to possess the gun. That's not true. None of that is true. What happened was after they were shooting at the range on this particular day or on another day after purchasing the gun, the gun was left in a case, in a gun case, underneath the floorboard of the back seat, the back trunk of their automobile, of their small hatchback SUV. It was a Kia, if memory serves. So where the spare tire would be, that's where the, that's where the gun was kept. The gun stayed in the locked automobile in the case until James Crumbly came home and then James took the gun out of the back of the SUV and brought it into the house. Now, with that said, it doesn't matter if James was the last adult in their family to possess the gun or not. The fact remains that Jennifer was not in possession of the gun and Ethan stole the gun. And as far as which adult was in possession of the actual gun last, the answer to that is Nicholas Ejack. Because Nicholas Ejack, as the dean of students, was possessing the book bag that had the gun in it. And then made a comment to Pamela Fine, the restorative practices director in the building, as to, again, how heavy the, the bag seemed to be. And he testified that, oh, I was making a, a gender joke about how I'm stronger than she is, and she thought the book bag was heavy, and I, I simply agreed with her that it was heavy. But at no point did they again check the bag. But Jennifer Crumbly was not the last adult to possess the gun, like the forewoman just said. Again, this jury is just bone-dead stupid. And they're operating on emotion, not any of the facts that were brought out in the, in the actual trial. You know, this is the part that's so disappointing, too. And I have no doubt the entire thing is corrupt. I mean, I'm pushing that to the side briefly, but keeping it in the same room. The part that's disappointing is that people don't seem to understand that it could be them on the raw end of this stick on any day of the week. That this could happen to anybody. And it's, again, it's, it's beyond frightening if you think about it. If you think about the statewide in Michigan and nationwide ramifications of this, not to mention, as I say in the, stub, in, in the Substack article, the Crumblies are white. They didn't do this with a black family. 
They could have done this with a black family any day of the week that they wanted to in the state of Michigan, certainly close to Detroit. But they didn't do that, did they? They singled out a white family and they made an example. Unfortunately, the verdict does not match the evidence that was brought out in trial, not in the slightest. I also want to make mention of this. This is a little inside dirt, and I hope I'm getting this particular story correct. But Ethan Crumbly worked at a restaurant. While working there and wearing a mask, Ethan Crumbly passed out while walking around, lost consciousness, fell over, and hit his head on the ground or on some other object in or around the kitchen of the, of the restaurant. This is way before the shooting. However, once the shooting took place, the woman who employed Ethan knew the family, and they knew the parents. After the shooting took place, the owner of the restaurant sold the footage to TMZ. Do you see what I mean here? There's way more going on in this than what meets the eye, because there's always more. Now again, let me read you this. This came out the evening after the verdict on February 6th. This is a letter or a memo from the office of the sheriff in the county of Oakland, Michigan, a Michael J. Bouchard, or Butchard, however you want to pronounce it. It says, for immediate release, Oakland County Sheriff Michael Bouchard or Bucard, statement on the involuntary manslaughter conviction of Jennifer Crumbly. Quote, the following is the statement from the Oakland County Sheriff Michael Bucard regarding the conviction today in Oakland County Circuit Court of 45-year-old Jennifer Crumbly, the mother of the Oxford High School shooter. Quote, my first thoughts today are with the families of the victims and the community so terribly impacted by this tragedy. You have my unwavering support. It says, I know this is not just a reopening of a wound. It is tearing wider a wound that has yet to heal. Each time my staff relives that terrible day in that school through their testimony, I can see the burden in their faces. And then he said the following, quote, I applaud the jury that plowed new ground for this verdict today. Plowing new ground. That's an interesting way of putting it. If among the parents' first thoughts, when you hear word there is an active shooter at your child's school, isn't to wonder if my child is hurt, but is my son the gunman? That tells me you saw the signs and did nothing. Accountability and responsibility matter. There is ongoing help and support for the community, not just through the sheriff's office, but through the Oxford Resiliency Center. Reach out, unquote. Okay. Again, the sheriff is taking the testimony and the evidence in the trial completely out of context. Having watched the whole thing, that's not what happened. What happened was, it wasn't until they found out that there could have been a shooting not to mention after the conference that was had where Ethan was drawing guns, bullets, a dead body with bullet holes, and all of those dangerous and uh, incriminating phrases that were on that geometry worksheet. It wasn't until after all of that, including the father 
going back to the house and finding that the gun was stolen, did they think that their son took their gun and could have done something at the school because it was at that moment that the school was on lockdown? That's why the father called 911. Because a text message went out on everybody's text thread who was associated with the school district that the school was on lockdown. So they all knew. Everybody in the area knew that the school was on lockdown because of an alleged shooter. Now, yes, any logical parent at that moment, being a gun-possessing family, you just got out of a conference with your son and counselors where he's drawing guns and disturbing shit on a worksheet. And then at the exact same time, you're, you're on your way to go get him mental health, but the kid is still in school because the school didn't kick the kid out, let alone search his backpack or anything else. And the parents are putting all of this together and going, holy shit, it might, Ethan might have done something. And under testimony, when asked, Jennifer Crumbly said, I didn't think he was going to hurt anybody else when I was hearing all of this taking place. I thought maybe he had hurt himself because even the counselor said that. Even the counselor said that the evidence on the worksheet was indicative of suicidal ideation, not suicidal thoughts. Again, that counselor is a piece of shit and he was splitting a hair that is so thin you can hardly see it. The difference between suicidal ideation and suicidal thoughts are... are uh, again, hair thin, absolutely hair thin. I put this up on my Gab account. I want to play it now. I'll play them in order so that you can hear what this guy says regarding the verdict and in uh, past legal cases and how this gets awfully hairy regarding the verdict, but also how this could end up being appealed because it would almost have to be because this is a once, I mean, this is an odd, odd case here. So give this guy a listen. I'll play his first audio bounce in, and then I'll play his second video. Here is here is his uh, his first one in three, two, one. So the verdict is in in the Jennifer Crombley case, guilty of all four counts of involuntary manslaughter. If you're not following this case, this is the case that arises out of the Oxford school incident from a couple of years ago. Ms. Crombley is charged as being the mother of the minor child that was involved at the Oxford school incident. My problem with this case is that the Oakland County Prosecutor's Office had the option of charging the teenager as a juvenile or as an adult, and they elected to charge him and then later go on to convict him as an adult. If you have an adult who commits a crime, the parents are not liable for the actions of their adult child. So if we change the facts of this case just a little bit, and instead of being a 15-year-old, he is instead 25. My apologies, the audio ended there. Again, he, he's making a good point. He's saying, look, if, if the guy was not 15 but 25, the kid was 25 and not 15 and a legal adult, there wouldn't be a crime here. The, the parents wouldn't be held accountable. And as I said previously in my hypothetical, if they'd have found Ethan with the gun in the school, with or without the parents present, the parents would not have been arrested. They would have been questioned, but they wouldn't have been arrested with any kind of a, and, and charged with any kind of a crime because they didn't know he had the gun. So just because people ended up dead 
doesn't mean all of the sudden you start charging parents with, with, with involuntary manslaughter. But again, the point that he makes, which I think is an interesting one, is they tried and convicted, rather, Ethan as an adult. Well, if that's the case, then why on earth are the parents being charged in the first place with anything? Here's his second piece of audio in 321. This commenter responds to my Jennifer Crombley post indicating this sets a great precedent. The only parents who need to worry are those who know their minor child is mentally ill and buys them a very dangerous item anyway. Thank you very much for your post, but I disagree. Michigan recently added MCL 28.429, which states that an individual who stores or leaves a very dangerous item unattended on premises under the individual's control and who knows or reasonably should know that a minor is or is likely to be present on the premises shall do one or more of the following. A. Store the very dangerous item in a locked box or container. B. Keep the very dangerous item unloaded and lock the very dangerous item with a locking device that is properly engaged to render the very dangerous item inoperable by any individual other than the owner or an authorized user. So let's say that you have a teenager at home that you can trust completely. But your teenager invites over a 17-year-old friend, and that 17-year-old friend steals this very dangerous item from your house and then uses it to commit heinous crimes. You can be charged under this new statute if you are not in complete compliance with it with a 15-year felony, and violation of the statute is also going to show that you were grossly negligent and you can be charged with involuntary manslaughter exactly like Jennifer Crombley in this case. The very provision that the lawyer brings up in that video was written last year. It was written last year, before the verdict. So again, they're changing law and adding things and making slight adjustments and amendments to existing law based on a trial that hadn't even happened yet, based on a case that was ongoing and still being put together by lawyers. Keep that in mind because that's always the game that gets played here. It's always about changing existing law. While an actual, I would say, legal deliberation between judges and lawyers and, and their own clients and so on and so forth is going back and forth before the actual trial takes place. Because again, by this time, you probably already had Ethan Crumbly's conviction. I believe that happened earlier in 2023, but the parents' trial hadn't happened yet. But it didn't matter. They already had Ethan guilty because he, he openly, again, pled guilty to terrorism charges. And now they were in the middle of changing their laws already before the parents were even on trial, let alone convicted. And again, you know, to, to some extent, I'll hand it to Shannon Smith simply from the standpoint of she doesn't have anybody else seemingly working around her. She openly said it numerous times in the trial. I'm a one man show. I'm a one woman show. You know, I, I don't I don't have other lawyers around me. Well, maybe she should in the future because she didn't do a very good job. She didn't do a terrible job, but she didn't do the best job. She didn't hone in on 
the specifics of the actual case, like the word stolen, that the gun was stolen. And as you heard that last lawyer just say, what if a 17-year-old breaks into your house, steals your parents' gun, and then shoots other people or engages in a crime with said gun? According to the new statute, the parents would still be, would still be held responsible for not storing the gun or hiding the gun properly to where no one could get it except for the parents. That's now in Michigan law, allegedly. So, again, this is, this is the slippery slope here, and it's not going to get uh, less slippery with time. This is going to be real interesting. Now, with all of that aside, let me get back to the, uh, the, the forewoman of, of the jury. This is the link that was sent to me from her being on the Today Show. Again, rather quick timing. So she goes from making that last comment that you heard her say outside of the courtroom to now being on the Today Show with Samantha Guthrie, who is, of course, dirtier than a bag of shit. But here's the forewoman's comments on the Today Show with Samantha Guthrie in 3, 2, 1. And oh, by the way, she, I mean, like I said, she's there in person. Give it a listen. The jury four-person in this first-of-its-kind trial is with us now. Alex, good morning to you. We're not mentioning your last name for your own privacy reasons. I have to say, to have you here, it's uh, it's a privilege because what we ask jurors to do in this country is really, really difficult. To sit, difficult. to sit in judgment of their fellow citizen, and that is something that you and your fellow jurors did. What was it like in that courtroom having that responsibility and delivering that verdict yesterday? There was definitely a wait. Um, I think any time we entered the courtroom, there was an un undeniable weight on us. Um, we all took the responsibility that was put upon us seriously, um, and I'm just one of 12 that made a very difficult decision. What was the evidence that swayed you in the end? You said it wasn't an easy decision. This wasn't a Not easy dog. at all. Um, so... Speaking for myself, I know that each individual juror had their own opinion. This did this for one person. This convinced the other. For me, um, I just feel like Jennifer didn't separate her son from the gun enough to save those lives that day. You felt she was the last person known to have had custody of the gun yes and then somehow it ends up in his hands and i think the responsibility of securing the weapon then falls on her what about those text messages or journal entries or things that the jurors saw where it, it indicated that ethan had asked for help and that his parents hadn't given him that help was that persuasive to you to me personally um it wasn't as impactful as the evidence of her having the gun but I know for my fellow jurors that um, the notebook played a huge part. Tell me about her testimony. It's, um, Jennifer Crumbly took the, the stand in her own defense. She testified. What did you make of her on the witness stand? Um, at the time, I tried to take her as she gave herself. Um, but once we went into deliberation, it became clear um, that she wasn't a super reliable witness in this case. Do you think she helped herself on the stand or hurt herself? Would it have been better, in other words, if she hadn't testified at all? We'll never know. Um, you, you talked about uh, her testimony. There was a point where she was asked, would you have done anything differently? 
she said she wouldn't have. How did that strike you and the other jurors? It was repeated a lot in the deliberation room. I think that it was very upsetting to hear. Um, I think that there are many small things that could have been done to prevent this. When you went back into the jury room, you're the jury four person, I am. which is a, a big responsibility. And I should just mention again, there is no manual for jurors. Nobody tells no. jurors how to deliberate. Mm -mm. So how did you handle it? And how, was, was the jury immediately in agreement or what, how, how did it play out? Um, so I took it more as a job of facilitation. I wanted to make sure that each and every juror, to the best of my ability, was heard and understood and made their point and we heard their piece. Um, and so that was the role that I took on as the foreperson. Um, it was not immediately unanimous. And um, it was my responsibility to hear the concerns of those on either side and construct an argument either way. Do you feel that the jurors wish they could have heard from Ethan Crumbly himself? I'm not sure how much that would have helped or hurt. Alex, thank you so much for your civil service. Being a juror is not easy, and this was a very difficult case. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Okay, let's go through it step by step. First of all, number one, emotion. Oh, it was emotional, and it was very emotional, and it weighed on us heavily, and every time we walked in, it weighed on us heavily. Too flippin' bad. Too bad. You have a job to do. It's to be objective and take emotions out of the situation, and you didn't do that. Again, this is unfortunately one of the differences between men and women, but it's also one of the differences between strong men and weak men, is if there's weak men in the room, then they'll buckle and bend to weakness and emotion as opposed to looking at things objectively. That's, it's an unfortunate reality that we live in, but again, I don't know how an individual goes from going, she's innocent, to she's guilty. After, again, listening to the actual evidence live in trial. You know, my brother used to say this, and he was right. If you paid attention in school and you paid attention in class to what the teacher was saying, you didn't have to spend a whole lot of time studying or discussing the subject much further. If you just paid attention in class, then, then they could give you a test and you would do a pretty good job on the test by just paying attention. Paying attention in class can be difficult, but when you're an adult, in a trial, in a courtroom, how hard is it? I mean, your comprehension skills have to be in the sewer in order for you to not be able to pay attention to what's actually happening. Again, I don't know if jurors are allowed to take notes or not. I, you know, I, I'm not sure about those kinds of details, but I do know for a fact, again, that if they were just paying attention to the actual trial and the evidence that was coming out, it was rather clear. They also said, or she, you just heard her say, that she didn't think that Jennifer Crumbly did enough to separate her son from the gun. That doesn't matter. The gun was stolen. The gun was stolen. It didn't matter if they had it in a safe, in a closet, which is where it was. It was initially in a closet, in its own gun case, that it was purchased in. Now, yes, the slide lock wasn't placed in the gun. doesn't have to be. The, 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 a little padlock being put on the plastic case, it, it, there was no padlock on the case, doesn't matter. There doesn't have to be. 
there's no law in Michigan that says there has to be. No law was broken other than the stealing of a firearm by an underage, an underage child, illegal possession of a firearm from an underage child, and then the murder of four people along with the wounding of others, none of which Jennifer Crumbly had anything to do with, nor did the father. She then said that she was not, again, I already said that, okay, uh, that Ethan didn't ask for help other than in the journal. Okay, that was, that was my note. Samantha Guthrie implied falsely, because she wasn't there and hasn't been paying attention to anything, that Ethan was asking for help in text messages and asking for help from his parents in the journal. That's not true. There was a line in the journal that said, from Ethan, if, it, if it's to be believed, although Jennifer testified that it, that, that wasn't true, that Ethan had asked his parents for help. I've asked my parents, for, it went something like this. I've asked, I asked my parents for help and no one's listening to me. No one's helping me. Something like that. There was no indication, verbally or otherwise, that Ethan had actually asked his parents for counseling. There was none. There was a lot of him writing in his journal saying, I hope, I hope I get help. I hope people help me and a thousand other things. But was he vocalizing this to the parents? That never came out in trial. Not to my recollection. And I'll tell you what, again, if, when Jennifer Crumbly was on the stand, I watched the whole thing. I don't believe that she once said anything along those lines at all. Ethan was keeping this to himself. Ethan wanted to get caught. As I said in a previous episode, there's ample evidence of that. He even wrote it down. He did say he wanted to get caught. If I keep sleeping in class, if I keep not turning in my work, then they'll check the book bag. Then, then, they'll, you know, then they'll check my journal and they'll see that I want to kill them. Then they'll do this, then they'll do that. Everybody was pretty much obliv- uh, oblivious to the actual journal entries and the journal itself. The, the, n- no one seemed concerned with it. No one was looking into it. But again, he didn't ask for help formally, to my recollection, either during any kind of testimony or, or otherwise. Not to mention, you heard the four women say they were not unanimous. That when they went back to deliberate, they weren't unanimous. Which means there's doubt. Which means if there's doubt, then it's not guilty. But unfortunately with juries, as we know, it's basically peer pressure. Who's going to buckle and who won't? Who has the stones to stick to their laurels and who doesn't? And there you have it. Again, I find it rather suspicious that the forewoman got on an airplane and flew to New York in ample time, assuming that the Today Show was actually uh, existing in New York. She could have actually been there in Michigan, for all I know. It's possible Samantha Guthrie was. I mean, don't quote me on that, but either way... um, it's it's just beyond ridiculous. It's like everybody forgot what they were what they were there to do, and they just wanted this blind justice. But unfortunately, it wasn't even blind justice. It was they were just looking at things with emotion and not objectivity. There's also this too. There were two parents that were on Anderson Cooper that night, the night of the actual conviction itself. Um, one was the father of Tate, and then the other was the father of one of the females who was killed. 
these two individuals were allowed were allowed to, of course, speak about the case and their feelings on the case, and they did. But Tate's father openly stated at the end of his comments or toward the end of his comments that he wanted the school held accountable, that he believed that the parents were were responsible, even though they weren't, but he wants the school to be held accountable. The other parent didn't say that, to my recollection. The, the first parent made no comment about that. And then again, Tate Meyer's father went on Chris Cuomo's show, and Chris Cuomo asked him, you know, do you think that the school is to blame? Is there a bigger problem here? Are there more people to blame? To blame? And Tate's dad's like, yeah, absolutely. This is a massive systemic problem. This isn't about everybody blaming guns, and and that shouldn't be the argument. The argument is is that this is a massive this is a massive deal. You have a massive systemic breakdown, and the school is responsible. I'm I'm paraphrasing him, but that's essentially what he said, and he's right. The problem is is now you have these law firms going after the law firm, or the insurance company rather, that was defending the school district from lawsuits. Like, again, we have Perkins, Coey, and and Taft, uh, whatever it is, Taft Law Firm, representing the, the Oxford Community School District. They're also going to do whatever they have to do to protect the school district, again, against any civil lawsuits from the parents and they're already i mean they've already been filed which which means again is there going to be any criminal conviction of the school the answer is no no one in the school is on trial this is really the biggest problem because again it goes back to that very moment the crumbly parents didn't know that their gun was stolen by their son for the purpose of killing people therefore not guilty that's the verdict there. The problem was the school had ample evidence that Ethan wanted to hurt people or himself, and they were in possession of the book bag which possessed the gun along with ample evidence that Ethan was going to do this. And during that entire time they were in possession of the book bag, not once did they check it, based on the evidence that they had, which was more than enough to check a book bag. It would have been more than, more than enough to pat down a student. You're talking again about the failure of restorative practices in the mindset of the people who work in schools. They're always trying to make excuses for behavior. They're always trying to give second, third, fourth, and fifth chances. They're always trying to do this because it's their job now. It didn't used to be the job back then. Not when we were in school. Because what everybody's witnessing now is the product of your diversity, equity, and inclusion watering down estrogen-filled men who are effeminate and think that I can be everybody's best friend and who knows, maybe I can get a tug job from one of these students someday. Again, you heard me say Sean Hopkins is an effeminate man. He's gay. We don't know what his sexual motives are or him you know, rubbing shoulders with students is and what all those motives are. We know about all of the sexual predators that exist within school environments. And, you know, we have to build relationships with children. And we just have to build relationships and we need to get to know them. That's not your job. It's not your job to do that. It's not your job to bat your eyelashes at students. It's not your job to dress up for them, be in pictures with them. 
go to their student events and be a weirdo. That's not your job. Your job is in loco parentis. You are legally responsible for the child and all of the students, i.e. children, because they are legal minors in the school building. You're responsible for their safety all of the time. All of the time. I've mentioned this story before. I'll bring it up one more time. When I was in high school, I believe I was a junior, if memory serves. I could have been a sophomore. I'm not sure. My, I, I think I was a junior. doesn't matter. Either way, I had a horrible, a horrible teacher, and, uh, and he locked me out of his classroom. I was literally walking and running from the other side of the entire campus, which was at least, I'd say, three acres away. I'm running from the other side of campus all the way to his room, which was on the opposite side of campus. And I never got there on time. In fact, I would always get there just in the nick of time. But he got in the habit of, of playing a game with students who were late to his class, and he would shut the door and then lock us out. One particular day, I got locked out along with a female student, and we're sitting, a female peer, and we're sitting on the floor outside of his classroom because he won't let us in because he was an asshole. I went home. I told my parents what was going on. They got pissed. We immediately went right back to the school that day, same day. My parents immediately tore him a new asshole in the counselor's office. In fact, they excused me. They said, Sean, go back to the car. Wait for us in the car. Here's the keys. Go back and just sit in the back of the car. I was like, all right. And then they leaned into his ass. And here's what they told him. They said, if my son would have stood up, walked out the side exit door, out into the street to maybe walk home, to only be hit by a car then, who would have been legally responsible for my son being hit by a car? Would it have been us, the parents? And he looked right at him, and he, my parents said his eyes got as big as softballs, because this guy had no idea that he was legally responsible for the safety of me, and that locking me out of his classroom meant that I was closer to harm's way than being in his room with everyone else. This is the lack of thinking that goes on among school employees because they're too busy they're they're too busy in their DEI training and they're too busy filling out all of these I'm not going to sexually harass anybody in the workplace forms. You see where all of the attention is being misplaced and then ladies and gentlemen you add in the prion disease from being jabbed don't even get me started on that. The people who work in these buildings are mental patients now. They have AIDS because they're jabbed, and they're not thinking properly. If you have teenagers getting dementia from the jabs, what do you think is going on inside of the bodies and minds of the people running these school buildings? That's why I can't emphasize it enough. Attending these school buildings and the very existence of these school buildings in this day and age now and it's never been like this until now, is a direct national security threat to the United States. I'll keep saying it, and I mean that. I can feel it in my soul that I'm supposed to say that because it's true. Look at how these people manage this. These people can't babysit their way out of a wet paper sack. They couldn't take care of a kitten, let alone 1,000-some-odd students. They can't do it. Because they're not even following their own policy, because they don't have any common sense, because they're not thinking. This is a huge issue. 
and it isn't going to get better with time. This will continue to get worse. The forewoman, who I mentioned earlier, in the audio that you just heard earlier. This woman, as it turns out, is an online whore. I'm not joking. She's an actual online chatterbait uh, webcam girl. This is what she does, apparently. Uh, I put these out on my Gab page, by the way. You can check them out for yourself, and these are just some of them. But she goes by Juniper James X on Chatterbait. And again, Michigan, United States, where her bio says, My name is Juniper James X, and I glad to see you in my webcam chat. Let's have some fun together. Maybe my, I'm sorry, make my, make my horny, and I'll show you something sexy. She can't even spell. The woman can't even spell. Uh, th- this is her, Juniper James, at Juniper James X and even XX. She has multiple accounts, and this is her. Same woman. Honest to God, it's the same exact woman. There's no mistaking her. She has the same eyelashes. She has the same everything. So, again, the forewoman in the trial is an online whore, or at the very least was an online whore. This is one of the things that you would think a prosecution, or at the very least in this case, a defense lawyer, would sift through or have their assistants sift through the backgrounds of these people and try to find them online before they choose them to be a juror. There's more going on here, I think, than what anybody can possibly imagine. And as it turns out, certainly the sheriff is involved. I I think that goes without saying. Other deputies potentially as well. I mean, the whole place is just beyond dirty. But Jennifer Crumbly did not get a fair trial. She didn't get a fair jury. As I laid out earlier, Again, they they didn't even take the instructions properly that they're supposed to take when they go back and start deliberating. Beyond weird. All right. Moving on. You got to get a load of this guy. And wouldn't you know it, it's my county. And wouldn't you know it, it's the sheriff of my county. Okay. Richard Jones. Old Dick. Let me get to this guy. This guy's making the rounds on the chat boards the other day. Uh, Richard Jones just got back from the sheriff's convention in Washington, D.C., where all of the sheriffs from different counties and numerous counties and numerous states all gather together, all the Masons in one giant room, and all of them believing the same old bullshit. So they sit in these conferences and they listen to the likes of Christopher Ray and a bunch of other people, and they all rub noses and they all rub elbows and they all massage each other's shoulders, and they basically get all of them to basically say exactly what Fox News would say about everything. Make sure and go back home and tell people about cyber attacks. That's what this basically entire press conference that he had here in Butler County was all about. Cyber attack, cyber attack, cyber attack. Prepare for cyber attacks. Cyber attacks are coming. Have some storable food, storable water, back things up, cyber attacks. Okay. Then, of course, he goes on this run about the Chicoms, quote-unquote, and fentanyl and the open borders and this, that, and the other. He also, at the very beginning of this 25-minute press conference and address that he makes, 
he repeats every single talking point and Jewish talking point that went out regarding October 7th in Israel. The Palestinians went door to door in Israel. They went door to door, raping, raping and murdering, murdering and raping. I'm not kidding. He actually said this. He believes all of that. Again, you know, if you listen to this show, and thank you, by the way, for listening, you know who you are. If you listen to this show, you, you know that I've been up and down Richard Jones's ass more times than I want because he's a complete fool. Again, he just repeats every Fox News talking point that you could possibly imagine. He, he, he basically watches Fox News for an entire day and then gets in front of a microphone and then repeats it. He goes to Washington, D.C., and he believes Christopher Ray. Again, rubs elbows with the same feds that are running drugs into our country and around our country. He rubs elbows and noses with the same people who could close our border in the blink of an eye and actually go against anything Joe Biden says and actually engage in a little civil war, so to speak, an interdepartment civil war against Border Patrol and actually do their jobs and uphold their oaths. But they don't because they're Masons. So what do they do? They all coordinate a message in Washington during this conference for all the sheriffs. They all believe it. And then they bring that message back to us plebes because they think that we're just going to drink it in and believe them. I don't believe Richard Jones in the slightest. Now, do I think again that they're prepping people for a cyber attack either before or during the election of this year? Sure. Of course, that might actually happen. Richard Jones spends the 25 minutes also talking about again how they've been cyber attacked and they had to pay out ransomware to quote unquote Russians because the Russians were, were hacking their system. How do you know that? How do you know they're Russian? They're probably Jewish. They're probably Israeli. But keep in mind, Richard Jones is a Mason. He's not going to say anything about Israel that's bad. He's not going to say anything about Jews that are bad. He's in on it. Again, he's drinking in all of the Fox News talking points. This guy is not a thinking person. You've heard me talk about him regarding the jabs. He thinks a cyber attack is a problem. Hey, hey, hey Rich. Richie, guess what? You have a biological weapon masquerading as medicine in your county, and it's been here since 2021, since the end of 2020, actually. And I talked with your deputies. Kim Carter and I talked with one of your deputies, and then his supervisor was told about it. And then the prosecutor that I talked with over the, you know, over the phone. I've been over this story a thousand times. But don't worry, it's cyber attacks. It's the Chicoms. It's the Russians. He has to be on drugs. I don't care if they're hacking computers. I could care less. There's people walking around, getting more and more shots, and believing that these shots are saving people. Does he not know that the Surgeon General in the state of Florida has called to remove all of these shots? And that he might want to look into that? Has he not read my emails where I've sent him clearly that say, if you take these shots, you have AIDS? The turbo cancers, all of the illnesses, the 300 and some odd pages of all the 
ill side effects or intentionals of the jabs themselves. He's got his priorities off. But again, he's telling people, have storable food, storable water, you know, enough for seven days, because just like in Israel, the cops don't show up out of nowhere when you need them. You got to defend yourself and goop, goop, goop. That's what he tells everybody. Meanwhile, I have somebody else telling me locally that these AR-15s that are being dished out to all of the deputies now, because he's decided that they all need to have them now, that, uh, you know, because of, again, another actual terrorist attack, quote unquote, from Muslims, that, that, that we should be prepared for this. So they just basically gave all their deputies a bunch of old AR-15s. Okay, fine. I walk around with a gun all the time. My head's on a swivel when I'm pumping gas all the time. That's the way that it is. That's the way everybody should be operating. We shouldn't be sticking around waiting for Richard Jones to save the day. Which, by the way, one last thing about old Dick. He openly states, and I hate when they say this. I mean, I can't stand it. Drives me up the wall. They will openly say, and he said it numerous times in this 25-minute thing. He goes, we're your last line of defense. Sheriffs and the, and the police, they're your last lines of defense. Go to hell. You're not our last line of defense. My trigger finger is my last line of defense. Is he high? Does he not understand the Constitution? Again, I like his cowboy hats. Good for him. It's an impressive mustache. Congratulations. But you're an idiot. You're an idiot. We get to defend ourselves. We don't need you. I don't need you to tell me what's really going on. He thinks fentanyl is like the greatest, uh, I don't know, hazard to, to mankind. I'm not saying that people haven't died from it, but ladies and gentlemen, I got to tell you, I'm not a trusting person, as you can probably figure out. I'm, I'm having a very difficult time with this fentanyl thing. I'm not saying people don't die from it, but it continues to sort of be this invisible thing. And this fairy tale, to some extent, it's really getting blown out of proportion. Well, it's the Chinese and it's the fentanyl. And see this little pill right here in this bag? This one pill could kill 10,000 people. And I'm like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This doesn't make any sense. <laughs> None of that makes any sense to me. It just doesn't. I don't claim to be an expert in fentanyl. I've brought it up on the show a number of times. But either way, I'm not, I'm not an expert. I just feel like the fentanyl thing is a bit of a distraction. And as I've said before, when you hear Chicoms, no, you should think communist Jews, because that's the problem. That's the problem. Funny how Richard doesn't ask any questions about who's funding all of the people who are coming here illegally. And I have another tip, by the way, for old Richard Jones. He might do well to shut down the Jewish and Christian organizations that are flying illegals into Butler County, Ohio. How about he do that? Doesn't that seem like a logical thing he could shut down? He could shut down the shots, too, in the blink of an eye. But he's not interested in that. He's interested in rubbing noses with feds in Washington, D.C., and making it sound like he knows more than the rest of us. He's an idiot. I know way more than he does about the way the world works and what's going on. I mean, for Christ's sake, this guy was bringing up 9-11. Over and over and over again. Now, you remember what happened on 9-11. Well, maybe not all of you, but you remember what happened on 9-11. I mean, them first responders were there, and 
They were the ones helping. There were no National Guard, none of that. It was first responders. We get it. We get it. I don't call the police if I don't have to. I don't call the fire department if I don't have to, and the fire department in our town is stretched about as thin as you could possibly imagine. I think they have six or nine employees. That's in a college university town with a population of under 20, whatever it is, 28,000 people. They're already stretched thin, and they're all jabbed, too. Isn't that weird? And the meat wagon, like I said, I can hear the meat wagon almost on a daily basis picking up corpses. Richard Jones doesn't have any idea what's going on. Not a clue. But again, if he goes to Washington, D.C. and he just believes what the feds are telling him, he's an idiot. The feds are your enemy, Rich. They're your enemy. They are not our friend. Ah, deep breath. Okay. Since my blood pressure's up, and maybe yours is too, let me read you this story. Speaking of the university town where I live, this, ladies and gentlemen, is really going to grind your gears. In fact, this story is this story is so preposterous that, honest to Christ, it it really sounds again like a Saturday Night Live skit, and I should say. It sounds like straight-up Jewish propaganda because none of this is real. This entire story that I'm about to read to you isn't real. Okay. Front page of the February 2nd, Friday, February 2nd, Miami student, the Miami student, the oldest college newspaper west of the Alleghenies. This This first story, again, front page, is titled, I'm not kidding, quote, It was heartbreaking. Black students question their security at bars. Now, you have to wait for it, because the punchline of the joke comes at the end. Again, the commentary throughout this as I read this, and I'm going to read this in its entirety, because this is a certain kind of stupid. But the punchline, you gotta wait for the punchline. (laughs) You can't... You can't make this up. This is the state of affairs, and it's absolutely outrageous. Okay, are you ready? Here we go. Deep breath, everybody. Check your pulse. But first, my Rush Limbaugh impression. Okay. Hot off the presses. Here we go. It says, quote, If Deborah Alabde, if that's her real name, A junior social work and international studies major had to describe how her experience going out to Oxford bars differed from white students' experiences. She'd use one word, awareness, quote-unquote. Being a minority in a predominantly white college town means black students like a a bloaty, I don't know what her name is, I'll just say a bloaty. That's just how it's going to be. Uh, like a bloaty might be more guarded. A bloaty said that when she goes out, she knows that people might discriminate because of her quote-unquote darker complexion. 3% of students at Miami identify as black. They identify as black. How is that possible? You either are or you aren't. What is this identifying stuff? Honest to Christ, what, what, what is happening here? Sorry, 
uh, it continues. They identify as black, apparently. They just, they just are. According to a 2022 survey provided by the Office of Transformational and Inclusive Excellence. Oh, I'm sure that's a, that's a fun office to be in. It, it says, quote, what if I get stamped at the bar? This is where it gets hilarious. What if I get stamped at the bar, she said, and because sometimes their stamps aren't very dark? Are they going to think I'm lying and try to kick me out? A bloate asked. So now she's discrimin or she's making fun of the stamp color on her dark complexion, and she thinks she's going to get thrown out because of that. This woman should be institutionalized. Honest to God, what is going on? It says, quote, Recent events haven't eased these concerns either. On November 18th, Oxford police officer Matthew Blavelt, Blavelt rather, struck Devin Johnson, a black Miami University football player, multiple times in an altercation outside Brick Street Bar. Now, I went over that entire thing, and they're leaving out a great deal. Old Devin Johnson, now they're saying he's black. Devin Johnson was underage, pissed drunk, and violent with the staff, pushed his way in illegally, thereby illegally trespassing, and he was later arrested, of course, and he was charged with numerous things. Assault, battery, criminal trespass, underage consumption of alcohol, underage possession of alcohol, uh... In public intoxication, a number of things. The guy's a dirtbag. But you have these dumbasses who are still trying to defend him. Absolutely nuts. It continues, it says, When the video footage of the incident began circulating, some people were shocked by Blavalt's actions. I wasn't. He got kneed in the back a few times and punched in the back of the head. That's the least of what should have happened to him. It continues, it says, Since then, an external investigation by Butler County Prosecutor Michael Gosmer uh, determined that Blavalt was within, within his rights to strike Johnson and that he did not use excessive force, an unsettling verdict for some. The Oxford Police Department, OPD, is now conducting an internal investigation of the incident and reviewing its use of force policies, according to a statement from Police Chief John Jones from January 12th. And then it continues onto the backside. Trust me, I haven't even hit the punchline yet, but it's coming, and it is hilarious. It continues. A bloate was disheartened, quote unquote, by the results of the investigation. She said seeing Johnson on the ground reminded her of when police brutality ignited the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020. Is that what it was? What is it? Police brutality? With George Floyd, or was it the fact that he was a wife-beating, kidnapping, drug-dealing, drug-using criminal who possessed counterfeit money and was using counterfeit money and then swallowed fentanyl and died from an overdose? Wasn't that what did it? Or is this person live in a cave someplace? Uh, she continues and says, quote, I remember thinking when I was watching the video, I was like, I can't even be safe in Oxford, a bloate said. 
Cam Little, president of the Black Student Action Association, of course there's one, said she wishes that OPD would take some accountability. Gracie Grady, a sophomore political science major and associated student government senator, also said the incident has negatively affected her perspective on the OPD. No one gives a shit what a sophomore in college thinks. It's pretty simple. No one cares what you think. Unbelievable. It continues. Quote, It diminishes the trust between the very small number of students of color at this university, between us and people that are supposed to be protecting us, Grady said. A bloday chimes in again and said that she couldn't remember a time in Oxford bars when anyone was outwardly racist to her. However, this is not the case for Little, who recalled an interaction she and a friend had with a customer at Skipper's Top Deck, which is a great bar, by the way. I haven't been there in a very long time, but best cheeseburgers in town. Anyway, they said, quote, We had someone come up to us and pretty much ask us, quote, What are we doing here? Little said. And then said, quote, How did we get here? Why are we here? Question mark. Basically asking questions implying, We don't have the right to be at Miami. It was heartbreaking. Unquote. I don't believe that. I don't think that happened. I think they're lying. Because these people lie. Constantly. It continues, Andrew Aramantos, owner of Skipper's Top Deck, said he was not aware of the interaction. And, is not o- and it is not often that instances like this ha- and it's not often, rather, that instances like this happen at his bar. He also said that he's been supportive of Miami's black community and has hired many black student workers through the years. He doesn't need to kiss their ass. He doesn't need to do that. I have black friends too. You don't have to do that. Just say we run a bar here. I have no proof that what that girl said matters. No comment. Get the hell out of my bar. That's all they had to say to the Miami student. Instead of, again, stroking their ego and, uh, and kissing up to him. Anyway, he continued and said, quote, You know when alcohol is involved, people say things that they shouldn't and wake up in the morning and regret it, Aramantos said. It continues, it says, The incident with Johnson has not been reported as racially motivated, and there are no current lawsuits against OPD or Brick Street alleging specific wrongdoing. Now, quick side story, as it turns out, the mayor of the town I live in, along with Jason Bracken, who you've heard his name before, so it's him and Bill Snavely, these two little butt-buddy Bolsheviks, and they are, these two guys went after the owner of that bar where the Miami University football player was illegally drinking and busted his way through and passed staff and, again, was physically assaulting people. They went after the owner of the bar to try to get him, to try to sue him, and get his bar shut down. Again, these are the Bolsheviks that exist in society, and they're right here in my own backyard. It's disgusting. These people are certifiable. It continues, though, and trust me, here comes the punchline. Ablode decided to speak up again, and they said, however, Ablode, if that's their real name, said she would rather go somewhere she sees as more inclusive After the events of last semester, 
Now, I'm going to let you guess for just a second what environment she thinks is more inclusive for her. Just pick something, anything that comes to mind. Are you ready? Here it comes. Quote, I feel the most comfortable at bar 1868, specifically on drag nights. Oblode said, quote, Oftentimes they have drag queens who are women of color or even black drag queens as well. Unquote. That's right. She's not comfortable being around civil white people in a restaurant or drinking establishment, but she feels more inclusive and more welcomed at a goddamn drag show. So, she belongs in a mental institution. It continues, Little has been in communication with Brick Street Bar since the incident happened, and the bar had previously examined, I'm sorry, commented rather, to meeting with students from BSAA in a statement published on December 29th. They should never do that. You should never meet with student organizations or establishments. These stupid business owners around here, you never do it. Have they learned nothing from all of the lawsuits that occur on other college campuses? Apparently not. You don't sidle up to the enemy. You ignore them, and you go about your business. It's that simple. Don't answer your email. Don't answer your phone. Hey, can we, can we talk to you? We're a part of this organization or that organization on campus, and we want to talk to you about how you run your business and what you do. You look at those people and you say, beat it. Beat it. Get out of here. That's all. That, that, that's how you handle it. It says in an email to the Miami student, John Greiner, a partner at Fakuri PLL Law Firm, wrote on behalf of Brick Street Bar and said, quote, Mr. Johnson's case should play out in the court system. Mr. Johnson will have his day in court when his criminal case is tried, unquote. Little said, the BSAA is dedicated to providing students of color with community. Shut up. <laughs> this is so stupid. She is working with OPD as the internal investigation continues and offered anyone struggling with this incident the opportunity to reach out to herself or someone else in the organization. Quote, the incident does make me question are black students really safe in Oxford and free to fully exemplify their blackness, Little said, unquote. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm rubbing my bald scalp right now. You might hear it on the microphone. It's a story like this that truly grinds my gears to no end. I'm telling you, if this is the so-called future of America, I want nothing to do with it. I want nothing to do with these kinds of people. Absolutely ridiculous. Fortunately, there at the end of the story, the bar owner got his lawyer involved, and if you want to talk with the lawyer, then talk with the lawyer. But business owners in town have no business talking with student organizations at the university level. They're a Marxist organization. Again, I've been over all of the Oberlin College stories on this show every single time that they occurred. The ice cream shop that 
you know, won a lawsuit because Oberlin was like, you're not giving gays ice cream cones or whatever the hell that story was about. All those, you know, you're not going to bake my gay cake and all this and all that. You're discriminating against us. These people are incapable of thinking. They're incapable of problem solving. It is this Bolshevik useful idiot collective that is destroying our country. And it's Jewish. That's what it is. It continues to be this way. You've heard me say it here. If I was the mayor of this town and had the majority on city council who agreed with me, we would disassociate from Miami University in the blink of an eye. And then we would make another motion and another very quick vote to disassociate from the K-12 school district. And I would simply say, you're on your own. You're all on your own. We aren't interested in what you do. We don't owe you an explanation for anything. You're not getting any money from us. You're not getting any support from us. Go pound sand. That's it. Your enemy is right in your backyard. It's right here. And they're brainwashing all of this youth into actually believing what you just heard those people just say. They believe that. All of this civility and all of this moral behavior, it just, it disgusts me. I, I just don't know what to do. Let's go to a drag show because I feel more safe there. You're an idiot. These people are just disgusting. I don't, I don't, I don't know what else to say. Honestly, why anybody gives them any time? And I know I just read the whole story. I mean, yeah. But Sean, you just gave them time. I know that. I'm highlighting their, their, their warped minds. That's the whole point. I wouldn't give these people a second of my time on the street, but I can make fun of them behind a microphone as the day is long, and I'm going to keep doing it. So there you go, America. Just another example of your average university campus. What could possibly go wrong in our country? Am I right? Okay, jab-related things. Here we go. A couple of headlines real quick. Nothing really new on this front, not since uh, the FDA and HHS, of course, have dropped all of their informed consent stuff, which, of course, let's face it, they didn't have it in place anyway. But uh, here's a headline from Natural News. Thousands of Americans are being prosecuted for forging COVID-19 vaccination status. Hmm. Sounds like the J6ers just jab-related. Weird. Yep. Let the illegals pour in. But let's make sure and prosecute all these Americans for, you know, wanting to keep a roof over their head and food on the table as they maintain their employment. Because they're the enemy. But don't worry, again, because everybody's sheriff is meeting in Washington, D.C. and just got back from Washington, D.C. rubbing noses and elbows with the feds who are the ones actually doing this. So remember that. We know who the enemy is. It's not us. It's not the people listening to this show. It's the people falling for it. All those three-letter agencies have everyone's best interests at heart, so Richard Jones would probably say, and he'd be wrong. Here's another one from Zero Hedge. mRNA COVID-19 vaccines caused more deaths than saved, so saith a peer-reviewed study. 
with considerably low efficacy rates, the mRNA COVID-19 vaccines cause more deaths than save lives. According to a new study whose researchers called for a global moratorium on the shots and immediate removal from childhood immunization schedule. If I had to take a guess, I would say that's one of the studies recently that I've already covered that had to do with, I think, Jessica Rose was involved in that, along with Peter McCullough. Okay. Again, more obvious news. Here's another one. This is from Slay. News.com whistleblower exposes cause of sudden deaths among vaxxed young people. No kidding. We are well aware. And the people on the inside know what's happening too. All the people at all the hospitals, the Johns Hopkins, the Mayo Clinics, the Shriners Centers, they all know what's happening. They just don't want to say it, but they whisper it behind closed doors. I'm going to end with this piece of audio. It's about seven and a half minutes long. This is from Dr. Mackis's Substack page. It's titled, UK's Dr. David Cartland Speaks About His COVID-19 Vaccine-Injured Patients. And this was recorded on February 5th. Ladies and gentlemen, give this a listen. Have a great weekend, and I will catch you on Monday. Peace. Good morning, everybody. Um, just wanted to record a quick video. Really, I hate doing these, as I've said on many previous occasions, but it's Monday morning, um, full of energy. Not, <laughs> but just wanted to kind of really speak to my colleagues who are also preparing for their shift today, you know, getting their scrubs on, you know, getting their medical equipment ready and just begging you, just imploring you to do the right thing. That's all I'm asking. In the last couple of weeks, really, you know, well, in the last couple of months, really, it's it's become blatantly obvious what's happening here with these jabs. Um, I've been speaking about it for months and months now. Um, in fair isolation, really, you know, the, watching my colleagues who have had the bravery to speak out, um, disciplined, regulatory, harassment, struck off in many cases. Uh, and it seems that it's a trend uh, for anyone who would speak out against the narrative, despite um, the, the apparent protections from freedom to speak up guardianship and whistleblowing that the NHS supposedly provides. Guys, I'll put it to you straight, really, you know, that even in this last week, I'll give a few examples. I've seen people in their 30s having strokes. I've had, you know, I've had strokes, should I say, after um, 24 hours after the jab. I've seen um, two really tragic cases this week. One when I was working in London where a lady's 31 and she's got metastatic um, cancer, um, fully jabbed. Um, I think she had four. Um, didn't see this lady directly, but that doesn't happen. She leaves behind two children. Two children. Even this week in the practice that I'm at today, you know, we've had a chap who three weeks after his first jab went from marathon running to dilated cardiomyopathy. And he's now on at least 10 drugs and had further jabs despite going into acute heart failure and has been told it's genetic. I've seen people given jabs that are out of date. I've seen people that have been given jabs under heavy coercion. For example, last week I saw somebody who went in to have the flu jab and said that he was not allowed to have the flu jab unless he had the COVID jab at the same time. I also saw a child that was given the influenza jab intranasally and was given the COVID jab without parents' knowledge at, an, at another surgery. These things are stacking up now and I'm seeing tragedies. I'm seeing blood clots in young people. I'm seeing heart problems in young people. Um, and it's just got to stop. As you put your work gear on today, look yourself in the mirror, ask yourself, what do I want to achieve from today? Why did I choose this career path? I'm begging you guys, I'm begging you.
I'm seeing so much carnage in my private clinic. I'm seeing so much autoimmunity developing, so much. Um, even a chap over the weekend on the same day as his Pfizer jab, he developed a movement disorder, which they're calling Parkinson's disease, but got worse with each subsequent COVID-19 jab that he was administered up to four when he said, no, that's enough now. And being gaslit. I know people that have had Guillain-Barre syndrome, transverse myelitis, MS-type presentations that are just not getting the help from their doctors. It's just tragic to hear the stories of the gaslighting and the, the dismissing of the vaccine being a, 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 any sort of role in this, even if it's a matter of days. These coincidences just keep coming thick and fast. Even in the last month, I've seen four men trying to conceive, four men at different places, and they have a condition called azoospermia, not one single functioning sperm. The amount of fertility and memory issues I'm seeing in young people, 40-year-olds coming in saying that they can't you know, remember what they went to the shop for or they're repeating themselves like they're 92 years of age with Alzheimer's. These people are fully jabbed every single time. The winter I've just experienced, every single one of the cases on one particular day, 16 chest infections, intractable chest infections were in the fully vaccinated with a mean vaccine number of 3.2. I audited, I counted it so that it was fact and not conspiracy theory. All day long, I'm told that I'm spreading misinformation, conspiracy theories, that's the line my regulators have taken, but no one yet, no one will debate me, rebut me, show me the error of my ways, you know, show me, put that arm around me and say, Dave, you've got it wrong which I'm more than prepared to be, but it's beyond all reasonable doubt now. Really, it is. It's beyond all reasonable doubt every single day. I've got 20 patients this morning, 20 in the afternoon likely, and I'm sure I'm going to see a good proportion of them that have been affected adversely by this job. It's time to speak out, guys. Let's do it, please. This one or two doctors speaking out, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. We're strong and safe in numbers. What are they going to do, strike us all off? At the same time, they can't do that. They proved that with the mandate for the NHS staff. I beg you guys, the amount of tip-offs I'm getting from doctors, midwives, nurses, even just last week, the midwives telling me what they're seeing at our local hospital maternity unit, the, the babies that are having problems. I mean, the one midwife said that the babies were coming out under underweight and syndromic, which was a concerning phrase to use. Placentas being delivered. Um, unhealthy placentas, intrauterine growth retardation, cardiac problems in mothering, uh, mothers having normal vaginal deliveries. It just doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. The amount of fetal distress in emergency sections. It has to stop, guys. I beg you, as we start this week, I beg you to please speak out. Have the bravery. I keep getting told that, you know, we can't speak out because of the disciplinary. We've seen what they've done to you, Dr. Cartland. That doesn't wash. Neither does the fact that, you know, I've got mortgage and I've got kids and I've got a car and it's, I've got all of those things. So every other dissenting doctor, we are protected, guys, and we are protected as long as we always use the facts. Stick to facts, stick to clinical experience, and you cannot go wrong. That's all I will say. Please, guys, today, consider it. Considering joining those brave doctors that have spoken out across the world, the momentum's building. There's been a massive shift, particularly in those vaccinated, and I've realised in the last few weeks and months that it is the vaccine that has caused their ill health. I pray that you realise that it's the right thing to do and it's time to stop as we consider rolling out yet another spring booster campaign. I'm hearing it across the land in Cornwall, spring booster campaign. Some people really considering eight and nine of these novel gene-based 
I'd say therapeutics, but there's not a lot therapeutic about them because they don't work. Okay, so best get on first patients here. So that's what I'm here to do, help the health of, of the people of Cornwall. And I won't be stopped. Um, the mudslinging, the trolling, all the rest of it that's gone with it, all the regulatory abuse and resistance. <laughs> In fact, I was asked the other day, why don't you just, you've done your bit now, you spoke up retire i'm never going to do that i'm going to keep going because i know as i said earlier i'm backed by facts i know i'm backed by clinical experience that i've seen with my own eyes and i can't unsee these things so please considering what you're seeing ask your patients how many vaccines they've had when they present to you with a terminal cancer in their 30s ask your patients how you know how many they had when they present to a and e with st elevation at the age of 27 how many jabs did they have Please, guys, I'm begging you, stand with us, the few people that have risked it all. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to American Education FM. Make sure and check out AmericanEducationFM.com for more information. Take care and God bless.